Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Ron DeSantis goes after Trump in the second GOP presidential primary debate. Matt Gates pushes Congress to the brink of a federal shutdown, and Florida's congressional maps land in court. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing this week with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. But first... Well, gentlemen, it's been a little while since we had a podcast, so there's a, a lot of numbers uh, out there that, to choose from from the last few weeks. So what do you have for us today, John? Zach, I do have a number this week, and it, it kind of sounds like my thermometer reading when people tell me to chill. It's 91.1. 91.1. Right. John is running hot. He, he's not uh, chilling uh, this week. Uh, Antonio, how about you? You know, I piled up all my numbers from the uh, last few weeks that we haven't done the podcast, and I've come up with 239 billion. All right, man, that's that's a, a lot there. Uh, 239 billion. Antonio goes high. I'm going to go in the middle with 67,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll let you know what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Ron DeSantis was at center stage again for the second GOP presidential primary debate, but he hardly is the center of attention as the race for second place looks more competitive by the day. DeSantis has been trying to recapture some of the energy his campaign had earlier this year, but hasn't really been able to move the needle. In fact, he's been dropping pretty steadily as the lead uh, that Trump has over him continues to grow. This time around, he went after Trump as he faces more pressure to confront him directly, but also faced tough questions from the moderators and other candidates about his record. John, what are some of your takeaways from DeSantis's performance? Well, the governor did have some moments, uh, even though he was largely uh, you know, missing in action a charge he leveled at uh, former President Trump. Uh, but 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 it was DeSantis that was kind of missing in action for most of the first half hour of the debate. Uh, when you have seven candidates on the stage, it's obviously challenging. But DeSantis had one minute of speaking time in the first 24 minutes or so of the yeah, debate. Yeah, John, I, I timed it. He he actually didn't speak at all for the first 12 minutes and, and didn't get any questions and really had to inject himself into the debate and sort of yeah. butt in, which there was a lot of butting in throughout that debate. It was uh, pretty chaotic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but he, he did get better, uh, you know, amid the chaos of a lot of crosstalk, as you say, and uh, and a lot of uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy and Doug Burgum, both of whom seemed to eat up an inordinate amount of uh, time on this uh, you know, presidential ego trip that they're on. Uh, but it's um, it's something that y- y- you just kind of wonder, you know, can DeSantis break through? That's a that's an unknown here going forward. But, um, you know, he 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 had that missing in action line directed at Trump, which was his opening remark about why the former president and, you know, clearly the front runner chose not to take part in each of these first two debates. Uh, DeSantis then managed to get in some references to his military service, which uh, differentiates himself from uh, both the the seven people on the stage and also Trump and President Biden. Um, You know, he managed to mention his service in the Navy, his being stationed in Iraq, his joy at returning to the U.S. to a base in California where the debate was held. And, uh, And I thought those were moments that appealed to the crowd attending and maybe also at home watching maybe, uh, especially Republican voters who once seemed very driven by military service. But, you know, I'm not so sure how much that 
really resonates anymore in the current MAGA-heavy Republican Party. Uh, DeSantis also had one of the more notable exchanges when rival Nikki Haley ripped into him, accusing him of uh, hypocrisy for backing a ban on offshore oil drilling in Florida and signing an executive order stopping hydraulic fracking, uh, when both of those things are now part of his energy plan that he recently unveiled when he said he'll uh, work to bring gas taxes down. Yeah, he really, um, he really, uh, his energy plan is really can be summed up in three words: drill, baby, drill. But yeah, uh, she she pointed out that he 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 was against uh, fracking when he first ran for governor. It's an interesting contrast with with kind of the environmental platform that he ran on in 2018, where where he's at now. Yeah, yeah. Again, he's trying to navigate, you know, history versus where uh, he thinks the Republican Party is headed right now. And and similarly, De- DeSantis was flummoxed when asked about why there are so many uninsured in Florida, people with no health insurance, far outstrips those seen in other states. Uh, he had no answer for something, you know, clearly this uh, lack of health care for people, it's happening in his backyard. And he seemed to, that that also seemed to belie the rest of his portrayal of himself as worthy of the White House because of his record in Florida and his claim that his victory last fall left the Democratic Party in the state in ruins. Um, you know, <laughs> actually, that last point is worth worthy of fact checking because I think the Democratic Party in Florida has been a wreck for <laughs> much of the past two decades, maybe before DeSantis. But um, so it was that kind of night for DeSantis, kind of a mixed bag, no breakout moments. And the question may not be so much did he gain on Trump, but rather, you know, has he held on to his distant second place in the standings? Yeah, it, 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 there's really at this point, um, you know, he's he's trying to fend off some of these people who are trying to overtake him yeah. as sort of the chief alternative to Trump. Do you think he really did that? Do you think that he uh, kind of separated himself uh, from the pack at all? Yeah, it seems like uh, Ramaswamy's, uh, you know, moment in the spotlight was uh, brightest back in the first debate. Uh, this time around, though, he ate up a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure if he has that, you know, uh, somebody fresh and new out there who's provocative. Uh, this time around, he seemed to be beat up by, you know, even more uh, contenders on the stage. And it and, seemed uh, like uh, Nikki Haley really tried to take command of the stage. She was really uh, mixing it up with a lot of the other candidates, yeah. uh, a, a lot more than than somebody like DeSantis. DeSantis doesn't really seem interested in, in really mixing it up that much unless he gets punched. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah. He, he does seem to have his prepared lines that uh, he now is trying to get in whenever he has that opportunity. But he himself is not trying to elbow himself in that much. Um, does that work? Uh, I don't know. You know, another good moment for DeSantis, I must say, I think is at the end where I think he did show some leadership on that stage when he rejected the question from uh, Dana Perino, one of the yeah. um, the moderators. The vote, of, who are you going to vote off the island? Yeah, which seemed pretty yeah. pretty gimmicky. Like uh, yeah. like this is already enough of a ra- reality TV show. Can we can we not uh, start voting people off the island? Yeah, <clears throat> and it, and it was DeSantis who stepped forward and kind of said, you know, that that's like a you know a, a insulting question in, yeah. in some respects, and uh, he didn't think they should answer it. And and everybody else seemed to kind of go along with that. And they they moved on to another question. So that was a that was a good moment for DeSantis. How do you think DeSantis handled John? He faced 
quite a bit more heat this time around for his record in Florida. He's really tried to run on his record, you know, on things like COVID or um, on things, some of his education, uh, things that he's put forward. Uh, this time around, he was really pressed on some of the things like you mentioned, uh, health insurance, uh, an issue that hasn't really come up at all, but it is mm-hmm. pretty important when you think of 2.5 million Floridians without health insurance. He was also pressed on the um, the whole African-American history standards where the moderator um, put a question to him that really he seemed to bristle at about how, um, you know, that there was this line in the African-American history standards that got a lot of attention nationally about how, uh, you know, slaves may have derived some benefit from their enslavement by learning skills. And and he tried to kind of say that that's not what it what it really means and that this is, um, you know, that, that this is a hoax somehow. Right even though the language uh, is pretty clear in in the standards. Do you think that he handled that well when he was on the defensive about his record? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he he's just flailing away at that. It seems like is uh, he said it. Uh, now he's portraying it as a hoax that is advanced by Kamala Harris. I mean, you know, it, indeed, the, the Democrats kind of feasted on uh, wh- what he said. But, you know, he 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 said what he said. And um, we saw last night uh, uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican candidate for president right now, uh, also picking up on that and, uh, you know, diminishing any uh, uh, reference that slavery offered some benefits to people. Um, That's something that Scott had done previously, and he had another opportunity last night to uh, jump on that. Uh, In a a party like the Republican Party uh, nationally, though, that is so, um, you know, polarized and so uh, polarized racially in the sense of there are very few black Republicans. And I'm not sure. I I think concerns about race are a driver for Republicans. So do do Republican voters really care that DeSantis may have said something, uh, you know, kind of offensive about black Americans? I'm not so sure if that hurts in a Republican uh, presidential primary. Yeah, maybe the fracking issue actually would hurt him more if people <laughs> right. think that he's he's not pro fracking. Yeah, uh, a- Antonio uh, Trump wasn't at the debate uh, again. He's he's skipping all of these debates, but that doesn't mean that his his present wasn't felt. No, he, he wasn't there, and let's just say that a few of the candidates, including the governor, made made note of it, and on more than one occasion. And in fact, that that seemed to be the principal line of attack last night against Trump, that he somehow was scared to show up at the debate stage and defend his record. Which really is kind of an odd strategy, considering that the former president has what 30, 40, 50 point leads in the polls. Antonio, I mean, it was also yeah. sort of the the um, the premise for one of the more more cringe worthy debate moments when uh, Chris Christie looked directly at the camera and said, "If you don't keep showing up, Donald Trump, we're going to have to start yeah. calling you Donald Duck." <laughs> what did you make of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I I was getting there. I was getting. I mean, look, it, if you're leading in the polls by such wide margins. I think you can pretty much feel reassured that people are behind you on your record. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those who are making, like you said, the Donald Duck argument really were kind of swinging at air. The bigger no-show last night, I think, was that no one brought up some of Trump's most heated and acidic rhetoric, particularly the last week or so. Over the weekend, Trump accused Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley of treason and said such betrayal should be punished by death. I mean, here you have a a, the leading presidential candidate in the Republican Party saying that he believes 
that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has committed a crime worthy of an execution. Uh, and then you had him going, and Trump also, again, went back to the fake news argument, but then took it much further, saying that a major news network will pay the price, quote unquote, for basically criticizing him. Look, those are statements that people listen to and conclude that I've seen it, you know, that they sound unhinged, but none of that came up last night. The candidates and the co-moderators did not bring up any of this. And, you know, Christie at the end noted what a divisive influence Trump remains in American society, but that was it. So, yeah, Trump wasn't there to defend his record, but maybe the bigger missed opportunity was that the candidates didn't take him to task for the over-the-top rhetoric that the majority of Americans have always stated that they are not comfortable with and are turned off by. Yeah, and you make a good point. It's like DeSantis is uh, and Christie are attacking Trump for not being there. I mean, if he was worried about that uh, hurting him, uh, then he, he would he'd show up. I mean, obviously uh, he he doesn't think that that's going to be a problem. So the the question is is how how do they kind of undermine him? How do they uh, you know peel away some of the the support from the GOP base? That they, they don't seem to have a good answer for that. Just lecturing him for not being there uh, doesn't seem to be the the way to to go about it. DeSantis did go after Trump later in the debate, uh, Antonio, on the abortion issue. Um, but it, that's another issue where it seems like Trump feels like he's winning by so much that he can almost just turn to the general election. What did you make of that? Well, that's that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, because Trump knows and he's clearly signaling that he thinks his soft spot, his his weak point of weakness is the electability question. That's why Trump is kind of moving back toward the center on abortion, because he knows that this is something that could cost them votes, and particularly in those five or six purple swing states. So if the biggest problem is electability for Trump, then if you're the candidates, I say, why not go after Trump's rhetoric, which speaks directly to electability, speaks directly to something that people from the start have said that they are not comfortable with? I mean, how many times, even, even along Southern Boulevard, when Trump was president and the motorcade would come by and forth and you had hundreds of people there, number of the Trump supporters there, when you ask him about the, the tweets at that time, they would say, yeah, I'm really not comfortable with that. Yeah, I don't really care too much for that. But I mean, I like his policies. I like him. But yeah. So you, you, it's clear that historically and even now, the one area where Trump gets into trouble, even with some people who support him is on his rhetoric, what he says, and why they didn't seize on that when Trump gave them, gave them plenty of ammunition the last week, I, I think was a missed opportunity. Yeah. And, and I think it's a really bad sign for these candidates when, you know, months and months into this race, they still haven't found a good way to take on Trump. It, it seems to indicate that there's that there's probably not a great way to take him on uh, with the, the GOP base. Um, I, I One interesting final note on this debate, uh, Trump did uh, put out uh, an attack on uh, Nikki Haley at the end of the debate, or Trump's campaign did, which is interesting. It, it seems to indicate that they think that she is emerging as uh, more of a threat and also maybe, um, you know, starting to, to creep up on uh, uh, DeSantis in terms of, uh, you know, being uh, uh, somebody who can really threaten to to uh, take over that second place position. So we'll have to see how that uh, develops. Well, um, 
the debate was far from the only uh, big news uh, in national politics this week. Uh, this uh, Congress appears to be uh, on the brink of uh, shutting down the federal government, and Florida Congressman Matt Gates has really emerged as the central figure in that battle. Gates is widely viewed as a likely candidate for governor in 2026. Uh, Antonio is shutting down the government a, a ticket uh, to the Florida governor's mansion now. Well, you know what? I mean, I, I know you've taken a good look at this. I love to hear your thoughts, but here are my two cents. Look, in deep red Florida, sure, especially because it is, it seems to be uber popular Donald Trump, who seems to be the invisible hand behind the government shutdown. Look, remember back in May when we were on a cliff as the national debt ceiling deadline was coming up and Trump wanted the U.S. to default? You know, default would have been devastating. And that is what Trump wanted, an economic meltdown that he could then blame on President Joe Biden and then boost himself in the polls. Diddle here with the shutdown. Anything that creates disorder, anything that creates chaos, Trump sees as an opportunity to bludgeon Biden with, and so he is egging on a shutdown. Moreover, there is also the specter of the impeachment inquiry that Trump desperately wants, again, as another way to beat down Biden and diminish his own disgrace with two record impeachments in one term. So political logic would say that, yeah, if Gates can pro procure a shutdown and help Trump, then he would be in line for that oh-so-covered endorsement. And in Florida, a very valuable endorsement from Trump for whatever move Gates may plan next. Yeah, and I think maybe the conventional wisdom a few years ago was that uh, you can't be seen as as too radical uh, to win election in Florida. It was a swing state. Uh, <clears throat> it was a state that you know was decided by uh, a percentage point uh, in many races, uh, statewide races, uh, but. These days, I think that view is really out the window when you see how much DeSantis won uh, last year, uh, you know, 19 percentage points. It, it really there's a view, I think, uh, emerging that, that really it's the Republican primary that matters uh, in, in these statewide elections. And uh, Gates is, is strongly positioned in that, which is kind of remarkable because uh, it was just recently uh, – that he was under investigation over allegations of sex trafficking, but the Department of Justice um, uh, came out and said that you know they're closing that investigation, they're not going to charge him, and now he is he's back in the spotlight. He's really emerged again as sort of this central MAGA figure in Congress who uh, really thrills a lot of the people uh, on the hard right of the party. You know, he's got 2.5 million followers on uh, X. Uh, he's he's really uh, close with Trump. He he's got a lot going for him in terms of uh, a Republican primary contest, and and I think that you know shutting down the government uh, for some people, for maybe a lot of moderates, and 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 maybe even you know some more conventional Republicans view that as just sort of irresponsible and chaotic. But for a large group of people, they like the confrontation. They they want to see uh, the government shut down. They want to see um, you know uh, federal spending reined in by any means possible. And and whatever fallout from that happens, they're willing to accept that. They like uh, somebody who's going to be 
be confrontational in a fighter, and that's what Gates is. And and so uh, could this help him in a gubernatorial primary um, in Florida? I, I, some people that I spoke to think absolutely. I, I spoke to David Jolly, who's a former Republican congressman um, in Florida, much more of a, a moderate now, uh, who has been critical of his party. Uh, you know, no fan of uh, folks like Gates, but you know, he just analyzing it from a pure political perspective, he was telling me that this is probably a huge opportunity for Gates, um, you know, to to really uh, attract a lot of attention. And then he really has nothing to lose. He represents a panhandle district that is deep red, that he's he's very uh, unlikely to get unseated, even though uh, that district does have a lot of federal workers uh, in it. Many of them probably are sympathetic to him, uh, you know, shutting down the government. And that you know, worst case scenario, he, he stays in his congressional district. Best case scenario for him is he he uh, rides some goodwill in the Republican Party to uh, uh, the nomination for governor in 2026. So, um, you know, in Jolly's uh, terms, he said that makes Gates, quote, very dangerous because he, he really has nothing to lose and everything to gain from the notoriety that he might get from this. We'll see what happens. You know, there's a lot of talk going on right now, and uh, they still have a few more days to figure this out. But Gates is saying that he's no way going to vote for this uh, continuing resolution resolution that they need to fund the government. Um, and it, he seems to have um, collected enough votes from the hard right to, to block that from advancing. And, um, you know, if they do shut down the government, they'll be under a lot of pressure. And, and we'll see. Uh, he did eventually cave uh, in these fight over um, whether Kevin McCarthy would become speaker. And McCarthy was elected on the 15th ballot after uh, Gates got some concessions from him. Uh, so it, it's not clear how long he would be willing to take on this uh, fight, but it definitely seems like right now that he wants to to uh, take this to the brink. So, well, not That's only a good point too, yeah, That's a good point too, Zach. Because the fact of the matter is, you get the impression that with Gates, it's not just policy. There, there's something personal there with McCarthy. Right, it goes beyond just the politics and whatever strategy and ambitions you have. And I, I remember covering that 15 vote saga back in January, and more than a few people mentioned that it was a bit personal, that there, there's some animosity between the two, particularly from uh, Gates toward McCarthy. Uh, some of the speculation I heard dealt with something you mentioned earlier, that that investigation of Gates and and perhaps Gates not feeling that McCarthy had been in his corner or, or, or backed him. Um, I, I never got to the bottom of that, but uh, there does seem to be between Gates and McCarthy also this personal edge that could be also complicating this. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, one outcome of this shutdown battle is that uh, Gates may, might be able to unseat McCarthy. You know, if Mark McCarthy does a deal with Democrats or um, if somehow the the um, the political uh, fortunes turn against McCarthy and, and Republicans start to turn against him over the shutdown fight, it could be uh, Gates is uh, seen as, as being able to to get rid of him. And, and uh, that would be uh, a big scalp for him. And he seems happy uh, that that is McCarthy. There's no love uh, for McCarthy on the far right either. And so that would be another uh, potential boon for Gates if he can say that he got rid of McCarthy and got Jim Jordan or somebody as speaker. So um, we'll see how that plays out. Well, one of the big reasons this is happening right now is because Republicans were able to take control of the House 
And uh, Florida is is largely responsible for that. With uh, and, and Ron DeSantis uh, is it has a big role in that, having redrawn Florida's congressional map so that Republicans uh, could pick up uh, four more seats uh, in Florida, and that really helped propel them to the majority uh, in the House. But now uh, DeSantis's congressional map is is really uh, facing a lot of criticism, and it's been dragged into court by uh, folks who say that it's unconstitutional. John, you've been following this court case. What are some of the highlights? Yeah, well, well, this congressional map has already been declared unconstitutional by a state court, and uh, that's being appealed by the DeSantis administration and will likely eventually make its way to the Florida Supreme Court. But the current trial in Florida is in federal court, where uh, Common Cause, the NAACP, and Fair Districts Now, they're challenging the map, saying that DeSantis drew the plan to eliminate a North Florida district that had been favorable to black voters, and uh, which was held by Congressman uh, Al Lawson. He's a Tallahassee Democrat. Uh, he'd held it since 2016. But um, his district has been eliminated, and hundreds of thousands of black voters in North Florida were scattered across four districts that are now served by white Republicans. The uh, group suing charge that DeSantis intentionally discriminated against these voters because of their race with this congressional map. And that violates uh, the U.S. Constitution's equal protection and right to vote provisions. The, uh, the, the state court in early September found that the map violated the state constitution's fair districts amendments, which prohibit districts that diminish a minority's ability to elect a candidate of their choice. Uh, this map uh, was used in the last elections, and that, as you pointed out, Zach, it resulted in Republicans winning 20 of Florida's 28 congressional districts. That was a four-seat gain, which DeSantis has now been campaigning on as giving the party the wins it needed to take control of the U.S. House and lead to Kevin McCarthy's speakership. Um, so the map is in trouble, though, now. And this week, in the beginning of the federal trial, DeSantis's interim chief of staff, Alex Kelly, he was the chief map maker behind the redistricting plan. He was he was rather defiant in his uh, testimony as a witness. Uh, you know, when lawyers for Common Cause pointed out that it was the Florida Supreme Court which drew the Tallahassee to Jacksonville black leaning district that was eliminated in the map, Kelly said that the court simply got it wrong when it was uh, ordered in 2015. Uh, he also downplayed any knowledge of North Florida's history of black voter suppression or plantations that date to before the Civil War. Kelly seemed to uh, kind of, you know, grudgingly acknowledge uh, that under questioning when he said, quote, there is a history, yeah. Um, Instead, uh, Kelly basically echoed the DeSantis position that to create the existing district that allowed black voters to elect a candidate of their choice, which would likely be a Democrat, that that was a violation of equal protection, basically for white people, that no matter what federal voting rights laws and the state's own constitution says, uh, the, the DeSantis interpretation of the equal protection law means uh, he wants what he's described as a race-neutral map. Um, the, the trial is being conducted before a three-judge panel, and whatever they decide will go directly to the United States Supreme Court for review, which gets it out of Florida, where the state case could be stalled by an appeals court and a state Supreme Court that are heavily loaded with uh, DeSantis-appointed uh, jurists. So um, 
the U.S. Supreme Court is conservative, but on matters of uh, Republican gerrymanders of congressional district, uh, it's been fairly aggressive. And just this week, it ordered Alabama to create a second black majority district in that state, uh, a sign that justices may not look favorably at DeSantis's bid to uh, enhance Republican Party uh, power Mm -hmm. at the uh, at the expense of black voters. So uh, we'll just have to see where these rulings go. We're we're still a little bit away from it. But voter groups that are uh, suing, they're a little worried about, like, where this may go, because uh, delays and appeals could result in perhaps a map being declared unconstitutional, but that because of the timing, it could still be left in place by the time the 2024 elections come. Um, but, you know, will the United States Supreme Court be inclined to let that happen? Maybe not. What was your impression, John, of the court proceedings? Did the judge give any hints as to how he's feeling about this case? Is there a sense that this these maps are, are, are in trouble or, or is it hard to tell? Well, I think there is a sense that the maps are in mm. trouble, but I think uh, perhaps the difficult thing may be the the. The grounds that they're suing on require intentional discrimination, and uh, that's seen as a pretty high bar to uh, to to reach. That DeSantis is uh, you know racially discriminating against uh, uh, Black Floridians. Now you know DeSantis's policy record when it comes to we talked earlier about his interpretation of uh, slavery when it comes to Black history. Uh, we've seen him uh, you know. Uh, 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 in, enact voter restrictions that were seen directed at black uh, citizens. He's, uh, you know, condemned uh, any, he, he's talking about Florida being the state where woke goes to die. A lot of that is seen as racially tinged. So uh, I think some of uh, DeSantis's uh, political record in Florida will also become part of the fabric of this uh, case. But it's it's kind of hard to tell right now where this three-judge panel will go. They, uh, they, they do seem to be asking questions about, you know, intent and, uh, you know, or, or was this really just a policy decision that the governor advanced? Um, so, um, it, it, we're, we're still probably uh, weeks away from getting any kind of ruling out of this court. The trial is going to continue next week. So um, still a little bit to go on this. Wow. That's pretty interesting, though, if the uh, the new African-American history standards could be used as evidence of, I know. Uh, uh, in, in this trial and, and could help strike down these these uh, maps uh, that, that really ties in a lot of um, what's happened uh, with uh, DeSantis on racial issues uh, over the last uh, few years and shows how um, you know relevant they could be in, in other areas. Maybe maybe Tim Scott will testify um, in this case. <laughs> we'll see. <clears throat> well, we'll move on to some numbers here. Uh, Antonio, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, I have $239 billion, as in $239 billion, which is the number that represents the collective income of the Latino population in the state of Florida. Look, immigration has been a big topic this year in the Sunshine State. Uh, you've had Governor Ron DeSantis flying people seeking a better life in this country, if not safe harbor, to other states. You have a new, more restrictive immigration law. And you've had DeSantis popping up at the border, the southern border of Mexico, and promising to send National Guardsmen there to stop people from crossing the border. But what's not been discussed too much is how immigration has actually benefited the state. And this week, I've been at the uh, Latitudes Conference in Miami Beach, where this other side of the story is being told. And the data behind that part of that story is impressive, and one that I think our listeners would want to hear. You know, nationally, 
the GDP of Hispanics in America now surpasses $3.2 trillion a year. And, and if U.S. Hispanics were compared as a group to other countries, their GDP output would rank fifth globally, only behind the overall U.S. economy, China, Japan, and Germany, but ahead of India, Great Britain, and every other nation. In Florida, which ranks fourth in the United States in Hispanic GDP, Latino workers account for almost 30% of the workforce, and their gross domestic income of $239 billion, my number this week, accounts for just under 20% of the state's GDI. But the data in the report, said Latitude's conference chairman, Sol Trujillo, is that, is that it's critical to debunking negative mythologies, he said, about the U.S. Latino population. Those mythologies, he said, include misperceptions that everyone coming from the Americas are uneducated or they go on welfare or are part of a drug cartels doing, quote unquote, dastardly things or are just just lazy, he said. The data Trujillo added reveals a key reality. The reason Latinos are such an important part of the U.S. economy and workforce is because they come here to work. He said Latinos come to America to seek a better life. And if they're not making enough money in one job, they'll get a second job. And if they're still not making enough money in those two jobs, they'll get a third job. And, that, and what's more, U.S. businesses need these workers. Florida businesses need these workers. And if they don't get them, they'll stagnate. And in Florida, there, there are $239 billion worth of proof that that is the case. Yeah, that's a huge economic impact. I've never heard anybody uh, characterize uh, the totality of the economic impact of that population before. It's pretty interesting uh, and probably worth mentioning in, in some of these uh, debates over um, the, the issues that DeSantis has uh, um, tackled with uh, uh, immigration and other things. Uh, John, you want to tell us about your number? Yeah, Zach, I came in with 91.1, and that's percent, which reflects how wages in Florida compared to the national average. Uh, Floridians earn less than the national average, and that may not sound so good, but the 91.1% of the national average is the best level the state has reached this century, according to uh, state economists who just released one of their periodic evaluations of uh, Florida's economy. And uh, I say this in a week where the state's minimum wage will go up to $12 an hour, up a dollar from what it is currently as part of an increase in the minimum wage that was uh, approved by voters back in November of 2020. The, uh, the jump occurs on September 30th, and uh, that 2020 constitutional amendment has the state on target to hit $15 an hour as minimum wage by 2026. So this um, rising minimum wage is certainly reflected in the better position Florida is nationally. We're, we're still lower than what people are earning as a national average, but it has uh, ticked upward with uh, last year's 91.1% level. That's, that's better than the 87.3% that the state had in 2020. That was right before the amendment was passed. So, um, you know, now, now this is still preliminary data, the economists say, with the, uh, the national average wage for 2022 not officially set yet, but it was $60,575 a year the year before. That was the national average. So Florida's average is probably 91.1% of roughly around that level. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the state is uh, moving upward when it comes to uh, 
you know, income, it seems. Uh, the job sectors with the, the biggest gains are the accommodations and uh, food services industries, which are big employment markets in Florida, and probably one where that minimum wage increase really does have a, a, a direct impact. Uh, now, no, you know, no doubt, we heard it in the Republican debate last night, a lot of people are squawking about inflation, and politically it remains sort of a albatross for, for President Biden. But at least according to this new analysis, Floridians are getting a little closer to meeting the national average when it comes to pay. Yeah, and Florida's really historically been known as a pretty low wage state, so I think there's sure. a lot of lot of room for growth there. Another good uh, economic analysis, and my number also uh, has uh, um, touches on Florida's economy. It is sixty seven thousand. That's the number of military personnel who live in the state. Many of them won't be receiving a paycheck if the government shuts down uh, at midnight on Saturday. That's just one example of how the shutdown could impact Floridians. The state also has nearly 90,000 civilian federal employees. Florida is not really as heavily dependent on federal workers as other states. It's not like you know Washington, uh, D.C. or Alaska or some of these states, but a shutdown could still really impact the state's economy in a big way. Everything from tax offices to food for low-income mothers and children uh, could be affected uh, and disrupted if, if you uh, we have a shutdown. Those impacts will be harder to ignore the longer a shutdown drags on. But for someone like Gates, it's hard to see any of the hardship that Floridians face making a, a huge difference in his political calculus. He appeals to people who think the pain of a shutdown is a price worth paying to achieve their goals and that there are bigger issues at stake here. Gates has repeatedly uh, pointed to the federal debt and deficit, and he acknowledges that both parties have contributed to that. But, um, you know, it, it is under a, a Democratic president where he's really putting his foot down and, and pushing uh, for a shutdown here. And, and really, um, according to some of the analysts that I've talked to, Gates really doesn't have anything to lose. He's in a safe Republican seat. Uh, and, he, and he seems happy at this point to risk any blowback that he might get from his constituents in order to make his point and, and maybe uh, increase his notoriety uh, among uh, folks who, who uh, view a shutdown as, as necessary at this point. And that makes the prospects of this shutdown dragging on seem higher. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.